Welcome back to my commentary to to, um, to the Festival of Shavuot, Pentecost. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. We have already talked about um, the timing issues surrounding the counting of the Omer leading up to the 50 days of, uh, of, of or the 50th day of Shavuot or Pentecost in Part A, and then in Part B we talked about the first significant Shavuot, as it were, in the Book of Exodus, the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah, as it is described in uh, Jewish terms or he, in, in, in Jewish circles or Hebrew terms. Matan Torah means the giving of the Torah, and now we are ready to turn our attention to the second significant scriptural Shavuot. We've already determined that the giving of the Torah at Sinai perhaps did occur on Shavuot, but we can't be certain, although it is spoken traditionally of uh, in Jewish circles as uh, the giving of the Torah uh, taking place on Shavuot. And many Messianics just pick up their Judaic lead, uh, the, the lead from their Jewish brothers, and say that it was also given at, uh, at Pentecost. However, we can't be certain that it was, in fact, the Torah given at Pentecost. And so it's best to say that we assume it was given on Pentecost based on the timing uh, of the days and the sequence of the events leading up to the giving of the Torah. However, if we turn our attention now to the Apostolic Scriptures in the book of Acts, chapter 2, we are going to find that the writer there, Luke, gives us the exact date. This next section is entitled, Shavuot in the New Testament, Round 2. I left the word New Testament in there because I know as a Messianic, many uh, within the Messianic movement prefer the term Apostolic Scriptures or Renewed Covenant or Chadashah if you're carrying David Stern's version of the Bible. However, I hold no compulsion on the terms there. Um, New Testament uh, does not offend me. Now, if it offends you, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you by using the term New Testament. If you see my term New Testament there, just know I'm referring to that which the Christian church, the, the non-Hebraic side of the Christian church, ostensibly um, refers to as a new covenant, but I also know or firm is not really a new, but rather a renewed covenant. Anyway, enough on that. According to the scriptural account in the Apostolic Scriptures, the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant, a.k.a. the New Testament, Hashem allowed His Spirit to be experienced by all of the believers, as well as by other men gathered there. It's a great chapter if you'll read it again with renewed eyes. Read through Acts chapter 2, and this time notice how Jewish the chapter is. Just highlight the references to Judaic things or Hebraic things. And yet this is called the birth of the church? Interesting that it starts with a bunch of Jewish men, right? The result of the giving of the Spirit, as we've noticed, was that the disciples were able to speak in languages not yet personally learned. We see that um, there is an evangelistic aspect um, and an outreach uh, to this outpoured spirit. To be sure, the text says that Jews from every nation under heaven heard in their respective language the good news. Yeah, Jews from other, all parts of the world, um, of the known world at that time, had come to Shavuot because it is a Chag. And a Chag means it's one of the three pilgrimage festivals. We have three that are uh, spelled out for us in the Torah. One in the fall time of the year, one in the spring time of the year, and one right smack dab in the middle, kind of in the summer where we're at now. The fact that they're able to hear these people, these Jews from all parts of the world, the fact that they're able to hear the disciples speak in their own languages is a miracle. It's, it's, it's amazing indeed. I have to think to myself, was the miracle in the voice of the Talmudim, or was the miracle in the ear of the recipient? You know, if we had one man standing, let's just like, let's reconstruct it for a split second. Let's suppose we had a, a man 
<clears throat> standing up speaking in an auditorium, and the man suddenly received the gift of tongues, as it were. Okay, language is glossolalia in the Greek. And in this gift, he begins to speak in a language that he himself was not learned in, that he, did, he, did not, he was not schooled in, he didn't, he didn't learn it, and it's not his mother tongue. I have to ask myself, is the, is, the, um, is the miracle in what he's saying, or is the miracle in the ears of the people listening who are hearing it in their own language? Or is it both? I mean, God's big enough that he could make the miracle happen either way. So it's just interesting to, to uh, speculate. In fact, Kepha, Peter, had to defend their state of sobriety, as they, if you remember, where they were accused of being drunk because it was so early in the morning. Now, they were actually there for minka prayers, if you were, I'm sorry, shakari prayers, if I remember. Let me take a look real quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. Acts chapter 9, I think it's 9 in the morning. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. Uh, let's see. He says it's only 9 in the morning, if I remember. I don't have the verse uh, highlighted here. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's verse 14 of chapter 2. Then Kepha stood up with the eleven and raised his voice to address them. You Judeans, all of you staying here in... I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, verse 15. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So it must have been during shakari prayers that they were uh, um, having this, uh, that, that this was taking place. Uh, you remember, the people said they're drunk. Because, I mean, why would they say they were drunk? Think about it. Have you seen... Have you, the listener of my podcast, you ever seen someone who's drunk? Or have you been drunk yourself? Um, what happens when you're drunk? Your speech is slurred. Your your um, your motions are 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 kind of um, slowed. You stagger a little bit. If you try to stand up and walk, you you know you sway from back from side to side. Is that what was happening when the when the disciples were being filled with the Spirit? I mean, I guess that's what it looked like. It must have had to look like that. So were they drunk? I mean, uh, we know they weren't, but you know, I'll just ask rhetorically: Were they drunk? Well, yes, actually, they were. They were drunk in the Spirit. Um, I mean, hallelujah, right? They were drunk in the spirit. Tongues of fire and the sound of a violent wind also accompanied this magnificent display of the spirit's power. This really is a theophany. Actually, um, the Hebrew word for spirit, I want you to know, uh, the Hebrew word for spirit and breath and wind, they're all the same word. Ruach, R-U-A-C-H, ruach. And ruach means breath, spirit, Wind. So when the wind was coming, you could say the spirit was coming, or the or the breath was coming. Breath, spirit, wind, all the same word. Um, we we translate it ghost. So sometimes I've heard people say the Holy Ghost. Ghost would be the same. Um, the Greek word would be pneuma, but the he, the the uh, uh, the Hebrew word is ruach. Now some believers today refer to this uh, uh, event as the record of the birth of the church, although I do not hold such a view personally. I don't think the church was born at Acts chapter 2. I do believe something new was taking place, though. Don't get me wrong. It was the renewal of, of the um, mandate to take the Torah and the gospel to, to every nation. And remember, Yeshua already told them that after they received power, that they would, in fact, take the gospel to every nation. He's speaking to his Talmudim in, in Acts chapter 1. So this is something new on the scope of going from the locus of Judaism and outward towards the Goyim and to, with, with the uh, desire to bring them into the covenant. That's, that's, new, um, th- that's new about this, uh, this event. However, it's not the birth of the church. The church, the ecclesia, 
um, the uh, the Kahal. They were existent all the way way back to Moses, so you just kind of know that. The display of the tongues of fire and the presence of great sounds, if you'll recall also, is reminiscent of the Sinai encounter. If you'll go back and read Exodus 19 uh, carefully, you'll see that there was lightnings, which is the Hebrew word translated kolote's voices, really. There were lightnings, I'm sorry, thunders, thunders is translated kolote. There were lightnings and voices, there was, there was fire, there was, there was, there were a, a mighty display. Um, it was an awesome event taking place in Exodus chapter 19, and if you compare the details um, side by side with Acts chapter 2, I think you'll find many similarities. This is why the rabbis also teach that when Hashem presented the Torah to the people, um, that it went forth in a multiple of fiery substance. Uh, inviting each individual Jew to accept the command to follow the whole of the Torah. They teach that based on the language given in Exodus 19. In fact, if you have access to the Targum, which is the ancient Aramaic translation of the Hebraic uh, story, the story that was preserved in Hebrew, is written also in Aramaic, and it was used in the first century in Yeshua's day, the Targums. Take a look at that translation in English and you'll see that they elaborate on the story of Exodus 19 and the Matan Torah. And you'll find that... Um, the description there is is amazingly similar to uh, what we read in Acts chapter 2. The account in Acts describes the tongues of fire alighting themselves upon each person. In the Sinai delivery of the Torah, the account says thunders and lightnings. That's according to the KJV. And again, as I've already mentioned, the actual Hebrew word rendered thunders is kolot, voices. This strengthens the connection to the account, the, the account in Acts, in my opinion, with the voices being heard. But how does this festival, the one in the book of Acts, how does this festival teach us some spiritual importance that we should never forget? And so, this is going to occupy the bulk of this part C of my commentary, alright? Let's talk about the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the power to live a changed life. I take a lot of questions in my uh, field of study. Um, I receive a lot of questions, I should say. I try to answer as many as I can, and I thank you all for sending in questions. Regrettably, I can't answer every question that's sent in, either because of the sheer numbers that are sent in, or because of the fact that I don't, I don't know the answers to all the questions. And, um, so, and, and also, some mail gets lost, even with the electronic mail that we use. Email can also get lost. However, a reader of mine sent in this particular question, and uh, I decided to utilize it in my commentary here to, to develop the remainder of my commentary, okay? for uh, I don't know if this will go to part D or not. We'll see. It's about 10 minutes in right now as I'm speaking. So, and we're on page 11, and the commentary goes to page 22. Oh, yeah, I believe there will be a part D. But for now, let's talk about what the reader sent in. Here's the question, all right? Question, what does it really mean to be baptized in Holy Spirit? Is there really a second experience even though I've been taught in church that there is one, I can't justify it by scripture, as I think it has more to do with unity and membership within the believing community. What exactly is the in versus on debate about anyway? End quote. Okay, there's the question. Let me provide an answer to question one. And it says question one because actually the question is uh, multiple parts. If you turn to page uh, if you're following the written commentary, if you turn to page 17, um, you'll see that there are actually uh, um, it's actually a longer question, and I just I just broke it up into pieces here. Okay, 
I should really say answer to the first part of the question. Here's the answer to question one of the first part. I'd like to first uh, quote from our core statement of beliefs found at Kehilatanava's website at graftedin.com. You can go to the website and click on the About tab in the Global Navigation section near the top of the page. Click on the About tab and then look to the left and you'll see Frequently Asked Questions. You'll also see Statement of Faith. And I lifted this um, statement right here about the Holy Spirit from uh, our website. So let me read it here. All right, quote, Baptism in the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This is Mark Mark put this together, Mark McClellan, the senior pastor at Kehilat the, the congregation where I attend on a weekly basis. And um, uh, he put this together, and I think it's a very well-written statement, so let me just read it verbatim. Quote, We believe by perfect faith that the Holy One, blessed be He, desires that all of His children appropriate and internalize the power and fullness of His gracious Spirit. The baptism in the Ruach HaKodesh and fire is a gift from Hashem as promised by Yeshua the Messiah to all believers and is received subsequent to the new birth. Read Matthew 3.11, John 14.16 and 17, Acts 1.8, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.39. The gift of tongues is but one of the many manifestations of the Ruach HaKodesh. Reference Acts 2.4, Acts 19.1-7, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1-13, through 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We believe in the operation of all the gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh as enumerated in Hashem's word. We embrace the complete ministry of the Ruach HaKodesh. Reference Romans 12, uh, Romans chapter 12, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1-13, through 13, end quote. Okay, at this point in my commentary, what I want to do is I want to treat the um, students to an updated version or explanation of this portion of my commentary to our um, Shavuot study. What, I do, what I've done is I've updated the study um, to reflect current uh, research that I've done in this area, and I, you know, I tweak my commentaries every now and then, and I um, update the, the wording and, and just, just fine-tune everything. So I want to treat the um, listeners now to the most up-to-date version of this next section, which is going to cover just the bottom of page 11 over through to the top of page 13. And in that little section, what I did is I'm going to pull in a um, an excerpt from a live class that I'm actually teaching in the year 2008, uh, 2008 on this study. So let's pick up now uh, the insert from the live class, okay? The very first mention of the Holy Spirit, or the Ruach, is in the Torah, and it's at Genesis 1-2. Um, the word Ruach in Hebrew, R-U-A-C-H is how I've transliterated it, is alternately translated as breath, wind, spirit. Okay? It's, that's Ruach. And so in Genesis 1-2, you, you remember Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in, in Genesis 1-2, it talks about the earth was unformed and void, and there was darkness upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters. The Hebrew says, And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water. That's David Stern's translation there. So this is the very first time we find the word ruach in the, in the Bible. Where we're going to go with this first part is we're going to really try and examine, is the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament. Now, it should not even be a debatable topic. But for some reason, standard Christianity has has 
how do I want to put it, has somewhat convinced themselves that the Holy Spirit only came upon people in the Old Testament, but he dwells within us in the New Testament. And so there's this debate that I've labeled in versus on. He was in a, he's in us today, but back then he was only on us. As if to say there's some, 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 some differentiation between how those Holy Spirit was working. So, along with this reference that I just read, the Ruach is also mentioned in quite a few other surprising locations in the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. Some rather familiar references are found in the story of Samson, Shimshon, where we learn that he enjoyed a special anointing from the Ruach himself. You can read Judges 13.24-14.20. Now, what's interesting is in these passages, we do see that the Ruach is described as coming upon him. So the Hebrew word is al, it's upon. And he comes upon him powerfully. But the question still remains, was the Ruach within him? It becomes a crucial argument because we need to know the answer to that question. Yes or no? Raise your hand just off the top of your head if you think or believe that the Holy Spirit was in fact inside of people in the Old Testament. Okay. Raise your hand if you've heard, however, I think that was most people's hands. Raise your hand if you've heard, however, the common notion that he was not. Okay, some of you have, some of you, this is a little new then, or it doesn't, you, you've, you've heard common Christian teachings that teach that the Holy Spirit was not in people in the Old Testament. He was only upon them. He was not in them. It wasn't until Pentecost that, that or when she was promised that he, yeah. So Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the pouring out of the Spirit within people. Verse, versus back in the Old Testament, he just came upon them, but he didn't dwell within them. All right? I've heard it taught that the Ruach did not enter into men until the New Covenant. However, concerning the construction of the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle that they built in Exodus 25 and through chapter 40 of Exodus there, concerning Butzalel, he's the master craftsman, it is said, um, the master craftsman is said to have been, he is said, I'm sorry, that's a typo, he is said to have been filled with the Spirit of God. Filled? with the Spirit of God? Look at my footnote number one. The Hebrew of Exodus reads, the word and he was filled up with the Spirit of God. I mean, it's almost emphatic. Um, and he was filled or he was filled up or, or he had the fullness. That word mala, uh, the root word means to have the fullness. So how is it that he had the Spirit within him? What's going on? That's according to the 1917 JPS translation of the Tanakh. Now, the confusion stirred up within the debate of in versus on, that is a teaching which purports that in the Old Testament the Spirit merely, and I put the word merely in there for effect, merely resided upon or on folks, while in the New Testament the Spirit resides in or within a person, firstly seems to ignore the fact that the Scriptures teach us plainly, and listen up, that regeneration of a man cannot take place without the Ruach HaKodesh. You can underline that or highlight it or circle it. That is the key to understanding the Holy Spirit's work in every age. The Holy Spirit, it's his job to regenerate the person, to take a man from dead to living, from death to life. Of course, this is going to be fleshed out in our study, but we're getting it right up front for people who want the bluff, the bottom line up front. Okay, Look at the passage... Um, Look at the language of this pasuk from Paul, this verse from Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But brothers, I do not want you to go on being ignorant about the things of the Spirit. You know that when you were pagans, 
No matter how you felt you were being led, you were being led astray to idols, which can't speak at all. Therefore, look at verse 3, I want to make it clear to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Yeshua is accursed. And, look at this last half of verse 3, no one can say, Yeshua is Lord except by the Ruach HaKodesh, end quote. So this is an interesting statement from Paul. Let's look at it. Now, he's using exclusive language. He's He's not just using rhetoric. No one can do that. Like we say, no one can no one can make a million dollars in a day. Well, that's not an exclusive statement. Maybe someone can. Paul's no one really means no one. Verse 1 seems as relevant today as it was back then, back in the time period of the, of the Tanakh. We believers seem to be ignorant concerning the work of the Spirit, and as a result, we go about bickering and arguing about topics such as in verses on. Okay, It conveniently helps to separate the Torah movement of which we're a part of from the mainstream Christian church if they, if they still teach that the Spirit wasn't given to people in the Old Testament because they're trying to make a break from anything related to Old Testament. And if we think that, well, gosh, Old Testament, there's no way that they had the Holy Spirit, then why would we want to even associate with anything that has to do with Old Testament? And that's why we need to have studies like we're doing. Paul's wish, or Shaul's wish, is that the help of the unified word of Hashem and the witness of the genuine and dwelling spirit, we should all come to the unifying knowledge that God has graciously granted unto us, as demonstrated by sending us gifted individuals capable of disseminating genuine truth to the body. Let's read a verse that has to do with that. In other words, this next verse is going to explain to us that in God's program of things, he doesn't give all of the answers to one person. Rather, he, he, he calls out a people group, like let's say this room, and he disseminates a little bit to Wendy and a little bit to Chris and a little bit to Jessica and a little bit, and he keeps giving a little bit so that we all need to come together as a body and help one another until we're all brought to the unity that the Spirit's drawing us into. He doesn't give one person all the answers and everyone else is just scratching. And so everyone has to run to that person. We all have unique gifts and callings. And for that reason, we're not islands unto ourselves. I'm speaking to the choir, but we all need one another. Well, amazingly enough, the emerging Christian communities of the first century mistakenly thought that they didn't need the existing Jewish communities. But that's a wrong-headed notion. And today, conversely, the Jewish communities of the day think that they don't need the Christian communities of the day. And that's wrong as well. Both people groups are still within God's program. They're both being worked at, and we do need one another. You had a question or a comment? So his comment is that, and I have to repeat your comments for the uh, people listening. Uh, his comment is, um, you know, God gives people a piece of the truth, and then in our, I guess in our weakness, we tend to think that, well, gosh, now we know it all. And we try to, I guess, corner that truth, and we we try to find everything based on the little bit that we have. Yeah, I mean, there are things that I know about Torah inside and out, and there are other parts of Torah that I'm baffled about. But you might have those answers to that Torah, and so you and I need a midrash so that we can both be built up together. I'll share with you what I know. You share with me what I know. What you know. (laughs) Freudian slip there. Um, You know, we share with one another, and together we get built up. That's why it's so... Let me... This is a little side rabbit or rabbi. I'm chasing a rabbi. That's why it's so important that you need to know, or I should say, you need to be committed to surrendering yourself to God. Some people say, well, you know what? Why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to go to synagogue? I'm not going to be missed. I don't know anything. I don't know any Torah. I'm, 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 I don't have anything to offer. Yes, you do. God has invested a lot in you. 
And if you're a genuine believer, then you've got something that others need. I need what you've got, so don't miss church. Little plug for coming to church, right? No, I mean what I mean is really come together as a community. People who 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 are believers but only stay home, don't join communities. What kind of nonsense is that? Yes. Right. Your your statement is exactly what we're looking at. Her statement was the reason why Christians typically think that Old Testament saints weren't saved is because the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out until Acts chapter two. And what they're they're getting part of that equation right. They realize that without the Spirit's help, salvation can't take place. But what they fail to understand is how the Old Testament saints were saved. And so we talked about that last week. If you ask your, if you if you line up many, and, and I pick on Christians, you guys know why, right? I mean, I don't just pick on Christians because I, uh, I have nothing better to do. Um, or because I don't like them. I myself am a Christian in certain contexts. I use that term Christian as well. I pick on Christians because these studies are, are Hebraic from Genesis to Revelation. And and when I when I need to focus my study on Judaism, I stick with Genesis through Malachi or Gen- those. Times. But Christians are the ones who are having these studies, and we're the ones that are dialoguing with for the most part. So that's why I pick on Christians. But um, part of their answer is right. Yes, you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. What they don't understand is how the Old Testament saints were saved, and that's an interesting question. If you ask your Christian friends and family, first of all, ask them if the Old Testament saints were saved, and you'll get a lot of weird answers. Yeah. Yeah, you either get they weren't saved to the animals saved them to Torah observance saved them to they were put in purgatory to all kinds of strange things. So there is some, her statement was about the uh, the comforter spoken of the para lambano in the Greek the, the one who comes alongside us that Yeshua spoke of. There is a ministry there is an aspect to the Holy Spirit's ministry that we're going to talk about that is entirely outside of us even in, even at the moment of salvation. There's an there's an aspect that the that the Spirit the Spirit plays in our life that we still need to avail ourselves of even though we get saved. We'll talk about that a little later. Some people call it a second baptism or things like that, but I don't know if I would use that language, but um, uh, we'll get to it. Let me read Ephesians four twelve through 16. Quote, their task, speaking of, of the teachers that God gives to us, their ta- task is to equip God's people for the work of service that builds the body of Messiah until we all arrive at the unity implied by trusting and knowing the Son of God at full manhood at the standard of maturity set by the Messiah's perfection. We will then no longer be infants tossed about by the waves and blown along by every wind of teaching at the mercy of people clever in devising ways to deceive. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in every respect grow up into him who is the head, the Messiah. And verse 16, under his control, the whole body is being fitted and held together by the support of every joint. Notice how it's working together the support of every joint, with each part working to fulfill its function. This is how the body grows and builds itself up in love. End quote. And, and again, I'm speaking to the choir, but these are timeless lessons that we just need to remind ourselves because we all get in a rut sometimes where, well, I don't like that person, so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go to synagogue or I'm not going to go to church. Or I'm not going to, I know people who get hurt at church and so they, they tell themselves, I'm not going to go to church anymore because I got wounded. That's the wrong thing to do. Okay. Um, Seek out those who've, who've wounded you. Reconcile yourself to them. I'm not saying you have to go to that church again, but you need to plug in somewhere. You're not going to make it on your own. You're just, you're, just, you're just waiting to be picked off by the adversary if you're out there on your own. I don't care if you have the Holy Spirit. He can ruin your ministry. So what is it about the Spirit? And this is, as you can see, this is a short writing because I'm going to leave a lot of room for monologue or dialogue. What is it about the Spirit that will unite us as believers? Simply and foundationally that this. Only the Spirit can regenerate a man so as to cause him to declare Jesus as Lord. And so from Paul's point of view, there are only two 
types of people in the world. Okay? Get my markers out. All right, there are two types of people in the world, and you can guess it easily, okay? Old man, new man. Real simple. Saved, unsaved. There's no state of in-between sa of, of salvation. Now, what I'm describing up here is known as a one-sided one work from God. The fancy term is monergism. That is to say, God does a work inside of us at the moment of salvation. He opens our eyes, we make a choice, and by grace, salvation is granted to us. And it's a work that happens, it's a legal change that happens instantaneously in the Spirit. The Spirit comes into us, we go from old man to new man. There's no, there's no, this process, what I'm trying to say, this process doesn't take like weeks or months or years. You don't get saved over that process. It, it's, it's, it's a fairly instantaneous process. The, um, the uh, examples that the Torah uses are like from death, from birth to death. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, from uh, from uh, death to life, like being born. Okay, I understand labor pains take a while, but don't get confused there. So there are two people in Paul's economy. There's old man. And there's new man. You guys understand, right? The spirit regenerates a man so as to cause him to declare Jesus as Lord. New man. And again, I'm, this is this is very. I mean, you're probably thinking, I signed up for this class. I, I I was taught this in Sunday school. Don't tune me out yet. We're going to see where this is going, okay? We just have to, we have to put this fresh in our minds before we start going into Old Covenant. Because I promise you, if you don't, when we start talking about Old Covenant, you'll get lost. Verse 2 of our Corinthians passage, so go backwards, back up to Corinthians, and you'll see. In verse 2 of that passage, I need to, to highlight a, a, a word there. Verse 2 says, You know that when you were pagans, no matter how you felt you were being led, you were le being led astray to idols which can't speak at all. Verse 2 of our Corinthians passage above contrasts our former blindness, old man, and ignorance as pagans being led by other than Holy Spirits with now being led by the one and only Holy Spirit, or rather Spirit of Holiness is really what Ruach HaKodesh means. Now, here the Greek word ethnos, that's the original Greek word in here, often rendered as Gentiles or pagans, this word must be understood within each individual context presented. The word ethnos shows up all over the place in the Greek. And we have, to, we have to know from context, is it meaning Gentile, which is a neutral term, or pagan, which can be a pejorative term. And here the context demands that it's pagan. Compare this, um, I'm sorry, here it connotes a foreigner from the nations devoid of true knowledge and worship of, of Hashem, in essence a pagan. He's not just someone from the nations who is neutral. He's, from, he's someone from the nations who's being led by other than Holy Spirits to the point that he's actually rejecting the Spirit of God. And therefore, Paul is trying to contrast this with new man, so he uses the word ethnos in a context like pagan. I have to say that because other places, Paul uses the word Gentiles, and he's not trying to say that, that they're pagans. All right? That's a side note. Ask me about it a little later on. It, it'll, it'll, it'll mean more to you later on, but for now, it's still just preliminary. So, we want to compare this now with the reality that we have in Messiah, viz, brought to life along with him through the gift of the Spirit. Old man, new man. The change is dramatic. In this sense, we are no longer pagans. Notice I didn't say we're no longer Gentiles. That's where the terms need to, you need to follow the terms. Some of us without Jewish heritage are in fact Gentiles. And once you come into Messiah, you're still a Gentile. 
but you're not a pagan. So don't let the words confuse you, okay? So we're no longer pagans. Did we come to this revelation on our own? I'm afraid not. No one gets it. No one gets it. Because the old man doesn't have the capacity to see it. Just like a blind man doesn't have the capacity to see. They don't get it. There's no way you can get it. Man is incapable of calling God Abba without becoming born again first. And you can reference all of Romans chapter 8, but specifically verses 14 through 17, where Paul em- 14 through 17, where Paul emphasizes that it's the spirit inside of us that allows us to realize that God is our Father and we cry out Abba, which is a term of endearment. You've all heard that before, right? Abba means daddy in Hebrew. It doesn't just mean father, like someone who's far away, but daddy, like little child to his loving father. And then the second clause of verse 3 in our Corinthians passage confirms this reality. The second clause of verse 3 says, um, no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Yeshua is cursed. That's the first clause. The second clause is, and no one can say Yeshua is Lord except by the rule Kakodesh. What does Paul mean? No one can say Yeshua is Lord except by the rule Kakodesh. All right? The second clause of verse 3 is perhaps a lesson in ontology. For those of you who don't know what ontology is, I defined it for you at the bottom of the paper. The Oxford American Dictionary defines the word ontology as, quote, the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being, end quote. In other words, when Paul says no one, no one, by, no one can call Yeshua Lord except by, the, um, except by the Spirit's power within him, there's two things that Paul could be hinting at. The verse could be going either way. And midrashically, Paul could apply it either way, depending on who his audience is. On one application, he's basically saying, you can't call Yeshua your Lord and Master until you have the Spirit of God inside of you. In other words, calling Yeshua Lord and Master is reserved for saved people only. That's one application of the verse, when he says, no one can call Yeshua Lord except by the Spirit. And given the context, the greater context of, um, of the entire passage there, that's probably the first application of what he means. That's the normative application. But many verses have secondary applications. The secondary application here is an ontological argument. The ontological argument is what we talked about last week and what Mark talked about all last week. Is Yeshua God? The, we, the reason we know it's an ontological argument is because in the Greek, the phrase Yeshua is Lord, Yeshua is, is um, Jesus, but Lord is kurios. I'll write it up here for you. Kurios. Kurios is the Greek equivalent of YHVH. Okay? This is the Greek. This is the Hebrew. YHVH, of course, is the tetragrammaton name of God. That's God's name. So if we say Yeshua is Kurios, what is Paul hinting at? Jesus is, I mean, the English comes out as Jesus as Lord, but the word for Lord in the Greek is kurios. How are we saying that Jesus is YHVH? It's an ontological argument, meaning it's, it's a hint at saying that Jesus and God are somehow one, that's what I mean by ontology, what they're made up of, how they, how they are actually one and yet separate. Don't ask me exactly how that works. I don't know how that works. That's the problem. I don't have the capacity to understand. Neither do you all, so I'm not going to ask you either. But that could possibly be what Paul's saying. And here's the, here's the fascinating thing. The only way you can apprehend this truth that, that um, Jesus is kurios is by the Spirit. That's the problem. That's why mainstream Judaism can't understand it. They can't understand how we can worship Yeshua who's a man but is God but is a man. 
Why? Because they don't have the Spirit either. And, Yeshua, and Paul clearly says, you, can, you can't say Yeshua is kurios except by the Spirit. So you see, it can be an ontological argument. That's a secondary argument. That's probably not Paul's primary argument. But, and that's, that's again, I wrote in my commentary that the second clause is perhaps a lesson on ontology is also a possibility, one that I will not explore in this particular study. If you want more info on that, I wrote a three-part series called Shema, and I talk about the, the nature of I talk about this whole ontological argument in three parts. It ended up being like 100 pages long, three parts. And in the end, I can't explain it. What can I say? All I can do is just show you inferences from Scripture where sometimes what we're looking at is a man, but we know it's God, and other times what we're looking at is God, but yet we know it's a man, and, and other times it's an angel, but we know it's God, and other times we know it's God, but it's an angel, and and this and that, and it just, you know, that's the way the Bible reads. What can you say? So, just using this passage out of Corinthians, what have we learned thus far? Simply that a person must experience the genuine regeneration from the Spirit in order to be genuinely saved. There's no two ways about it. You either have the Spirit which saves you, or you do not have the Spirit and you're not saved. This truth is fundamentally applicable from Adam to today. No man, I repeat, no man approaches the Father except through Yeshua, and no man may come unless the Father draws him. You can read John 6, verse 30 through 71, where the primary discussion of this particular pericope is eternal life offered exclusively through Yeshua. Okay? Yeshua makes it exclusive. Only the spirit of Yeshua entering into a man can regenerate a man. Now let us turn to a discussion on Yeshua's promise of the Spirit in Acts chapter 1. We've just dealt with regeneration, okay? Let's turn now to Acts chapter 1 and see the other side of the coin. Let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Quote, when they were together, when they were together, they asked him, the they, of course, is the disciples, Lord, are you at this time going to restore self-rule to Israel? He answered, you don't need to know the dates or the times. The Father has kept these under his own authority. But you will receive power when the rule excuse me, you will receive power when the rule Kakodesh comes upon you. You will be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim and in all Yehuda and Shomron, indeed to all the I'm sorry, indeed to the ends of the earth. End quote. That's from the CJB, obviously. Amazingly, we find here did you guys catch it? We find a quote-unquote New Testament passage utilizing the word upon instead of in. Okay? Go back to my whole in versus on debate. Many people, have, again, have said, in the New Testament, the Spirit is in people. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was on people. However, I just read a passage from the New Testament where the Spirit is on people, not in people. Okay, I'm challenging the language right up front. The Greek word for upon in verse 8 above there is epi, and its primary meaning is in fact just that, upon. Epi means upon. According to um, the Thayers and Smith's Bible Dictionary, epi can also mean on, at, by, before, over, against, to, or across. Look at my footnote, footnote, my, <laughs> my footnote there down on the bottom of page 13, footnote number 6. So epi means upon. Okay. In fact, look at the look at the way it's translated again in the TSBD. On, at, by, before, over, against, to, across, as well as upon. This word is never translated as in. 
anywhere that I can find in the Apostolic Scriptures. If you can find a translation where it says the word in there, bring that to my attention. Go ahead and email me the passage and the, um, and the translation that utilizes the word in there for the word epi in this passage. Okay? Clearly the work of the Spirit in these verses refers to taking the gospel message beyond the confines of the city limits. That's what he means when he says, you will be my witnesses to um, Judah and Samaria and all of Jerusalem. It's, it's going beyond the city limits into the foreign mission field of the non-Jews. Something that was unthinkable for the ethnocentric Jewish first century Judaisms, if you'll recall. Jesus is actually commissioning his disciples to do something that in and of themselves they were hesitant to do. In fact, the Jewish core of the Talmud needed the empowering of the real Kakodesh if they were going to overcome the social barriers created by the prevailing rabbinic halakha that sought to separate Jew from non-Jew. Okay? Acts chapter 2, which we just talked about earlier, which cites Joel 3, verses 1 through 5, or chapter, it, it cites Joel 2, 28 through 32 in your English Bible, is proof positive that God was using Jewish believers to reach out to non-Jewish peoples everywhere. So, we're beginning to understand why the Spirit is being poured out upon the Talmudim. Okay? But before we make our conclusion, let's read another passage. Another um, place is 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16, where the language should read on, if we're going to make our argument, I'm sorry, the language should read in, if we're going to make our argument of in verses on consistent, but instead of saying in, the, um, the, the translation reads on. Okay, you ready for this? Here we go. 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, quote, Dear friends, don't regard as strange the fiery ordeal occurring among you to test you as if something extraordinary were happening to you. Rather, to the extent that you share the fellowship of the Messiah's sufferings, rejoice so that you will rejoice even more when his Shekhinah is revealed. If you are being insulted because you bear the name of the Messiah, how blessed are you? For the spirit of the Shekhinah, that is, the spirit of God, is resting on you. Let none of you suffer for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler in other people's affairs. But if anyone suffers for being messianic, let him not be ashamed, but let him bring glory to God by the way he bears this name. End quote. Again, the Greek word for on in verse 14 of the passage I just read is epi. Remember, epi means on or upon, but I haven't seen it translated as in yet. Isn't that interesting? If we're to ostensibly teach that in the New Testament the Spirit was in people, then why am I reading a verse where it explicitly tells me that the Spirit is upon or on people? That's my challenge. Context again shows that an already genuine believer is receiving subsequent empowering to withstand the trials that come as a result of bearing the name of Yeshua in the first place. The Spirit is not coming upon this person in the verse we just read to save him. The person in the verse above is already saved. No, just like in the, book, in the Acts passage, the Talmudim were already saved. The Spirit was coming upon them for something else. Verse 14 clearly shows the proper order, verse 14 of this passage in, out of uh, Peter, 
clearly shows the proper order in which to understand the in versus on debate, and namely this. The Spirit saves an individual, and then the Spirit subsequently empowers such an individual to witness for Yeshua. I've got lots more I want to talk about concerning this in versus on debate, but it's about 33 minutes into part C. I'd like to break it off right here and um, uh, ask you to stay tuned for part D, okay? Stay with us for the commentary to Shavuot.